sounds from the streets in Pittsburgh last week as leaders of the world's richest nations gathered in Pittsburgh for the G20 summit this past Thursday and Friday. Thousands took to the streets in protest amidst a heavy police crackdown. Heavily armed riot police were out in force and used tear gas, stun grenades, smoke canisters, uh, and new sound cannons, which direct extremely loud, shrill sounds. It was believed to be the first time these sound cannons had been publicly used in the United States. More than 175 people were arrested over uh, the two days. Uh, one individual who was uh, there out on the streets is uh, Pittsburgh activist David Myron. David Myron is an activist and community organizer who has worked on a variety of peace, social, and environmental justice issues, including AIDS, LGBTQ rights, police violence, human rights, war and militarism, and climate change. A Pittsburgh resident, David was a full-time organizer for the G20 Summit Mobilization, focusing on the Three Rivers Climate Convergence and the G20 Media Support Team. He's now concentrating on efforts to hold public officials accountable for the violent paramilitary suppression of free speech that took place at the G20 Summit last week. And uh, joining us this morning from Pittsburgh is David Myron. Good morning, David. Good morning, Jared. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us. Uh, why don't we begin just to make sure that listeners know about the G20, because we often hear about the G8, we hear about the G20. It seems that uh, there could be some confusion. So uh, what is the G20, and uh, why were protesters taken to the streets? Well, the G20 is the new G8, only really it's G19, because it's 19 of the uh, world's wealthiest economies, but then European Union is also on there. So there's a little bit of double representation. And uh, it's also not the world's wealthiest economies per se, because Venezuela wasn't invited to the table. But in any case, whoever, however you count it, it's 80% of the world's greatest wealth-making decisions uh, for 6.7 billion people. And I say it's replaced the, G, the G8, and that was one of the explicit decisions that was made at this past uh, summit. So um, the G8, which had been the usual focus of uh, criticism by um, the global justice movement and other activists uh, and other social movements, um, is now being replaced essentially by the G20. So why people were protesting? Well, 
If you survey the full range of organizing sectors, and I don't even think there's a complete and exhaustive list, you'll see that there were dozens of organizing sectors um, concerned about hundreds of different issues. And uh, what I'm referring to are, when I say an organizing sector, I mean the labor movement, the environmental justice movement, the anti-war movement, the movement for free Tibet, Burmese, I, the list just goes on. And um, the particular efforts that I was focusing on, well, I was focusing on two things, as you mentioned in the bio. One was uh, a climate convergence, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. And there our focus was on environmental justice um, with our aim to amplify the focus, focus of the local and regional coal-impacted communities. Um, and that was uh, especially important since in the three days preceding the G20 summit, there was the International Coal Conference being held in Pittsburgh, indeed in the same uh, convention center complex as the G20 summit itself. And actually, after the G20 was announced, they had to move their um, schedule up a little bit. So uh, as a convergence, we called for a week-long set of activities aimed at focusing on coal and climate. Uh, and this region is particularly uh, devastated by the coal impact. Uh, it's particularly large in terms of the coal impacts of coal in that not only does the city have the worst air quality in the country and then one of the worst water supplies. But just to the south of the city, they're considering building new coal-fired plants as if we didn't have enough already. There's been longwall mining, which is a type of mining that has essentially destroys communities by uh, and lakes and ecosystems. And then throughout Appalachia, which Pittsburgh is often called the Paris of Appalachia, there, of course, have been the more uh, visible uh, harms that come from mountaintop removal. So just to start off with that, it was really more than just the two days of the G20 summit. There was the coal conference and activities surrounding that. And then even before the beginning of the coal conference, activists got underway with the People Summit, um, which was an alternative summit that drew about 500-plus people and included voices from everyone from uh, Jeremy Scahill, who talked about, uh, who's the author of uh, Blackwater, and to people talking about torture, um, climate change, and more. Um, so that's well, sort of a long... Well, yeah, yeah let's, let's focus on that for a second, because, you know, I admittedly there are times when uh, activists will go to uh, an anti-war protest, and they're talking about everything under the sun from free Mumia to, you know save the turtles, the sea turtles, and sometimes it could be disconcerting for people who simply want to protest, you know, the, the U.S. occupation of Iraq or Afghanistan. At the same time, it makes sense that when you have a meeting of, say, a G8 or a G20 or a WTO, that you would have activists from uh, across the demographic spectrum and indeed across the, uh, the ideological spectrum. So could you talk a bit about why you see so many different um, constituencies, and, uh, ideological and demographic, represented in the streets uh, outside uh, a forum like this? I mean, what kind of power does the G20 possess? Well, first, I want to make sure that folks realize it wasn't just in the streets where the activism took place. This was not only where there are a broad range of voices 
in the streets. There were a broad range of voices in many different places. And long before the G20 summit arrived, one of the most exciting efforts was initiated by the Pittsburgh G20 Resistance Project's local outreach group. And they essentially distributed thousands of flyers going door-to-door explaining to people what the G20 was and why people might have something against it. And it was interesting because uh, this is not to belie any the lack of ignorance on the part of Pittsburghers, but many people weren't really clear on what the G20 was. And it took a while before the media even began to understand what it was and why these meetings were important. I mean, sure, people had some vague sense, oh, yeah, leaders coming together to talk about stuff. But why this G20, as I mentioned, is now displaced the G8 and playing a similar role as the G8 had in decision-making for the the world is... Um, there are far-reaching, large-scale decisions that the G20 is now responsible for, decisions that affect the entire planet. And these include things like um, what sort of uh, steps are going to be taken in terms of climate change, um, you know, building up to the uh, Copenhagen summit, which uh, is taking place in December, to decisions about reforming the IMF and how retooling the global economy. And so one of the huge areas of concern are those who just feel like the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and neoliberalism, the uh, principles, the economic principles and foundation behind corporate globalization, many people feel that is broken to begin with. That's what got us into the the first place. And um, simply bailing out the banks, as the phrase goes, is not enough, that capitalism is the problem, not the solution. And even Obama's kinder, gentler neoliberalism, as I like to call it, is, uh, is for many people, believe that it's just going to further take us down a road of economic disaster, further widening inequalities and increasing hunger and um, inequitable distribution of resources. So there's the economic piece and the, the, the climate piece that were specifically being discussed in this G20 summit. Uh, meeting and the decisions that they were making. But then there's other aspects to it. These are the country's leaders, which, I mean, these are, sorry, leaders from different countries that each have their own crop of problems, either individually or collectively. You know, hence you saw um, the Free Tibet folks here focusing on the oppression of Tibet and the occupation of Tibet by China. Um, there were, uh, there was a women's encampment organized by Code Pink and Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which was focusing on war and refugees, uh, war, war refugees, particularly women and children. You know, and that was clearly aimed first and foremost at the United States, which has been the largest purveyor of violence throughout the world, been displacing millions of people in Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan and everywhere else. The, uh, there was, of course, the issue that... Um, uh, people brought in terms of what do we do about the U.S. economy. And so there was uh, an economic caravan called Bail Out the People, uh, i.e. Bail Out the People and Not the Banks, which was focusing largely on the administration's um, efforts to, uh, you know, continue to infuse the economy by giving banks money but not giving people money, and as, what, as a result, there was spiraling uh, unemployment and people losing their homes and everything else. So um, 
I could go on. I mean, the list is so extensive. I encourage folks to visit g20media.org to get a sense of what happened and to read articles and stories and video and audio and press releases and more, uh, as well as the Pittsburgh Indie Media website, pittsburgh.indymedia.org. Um, you'll find links there to the many different organizations and issues that took, that uh, people were concerned about. So it wasn't just the protesting the G20 and the corporate globalization and what these leaders were making collectively, but it was also sometimes about the individual countries' uh, decisions and policy making. Um, I, I can't remember off the top of my head what other countries were focused, but, you know, the, one of the more interesting things was during the, the People's March, which was the big march on Friday, the big permitted march, um, there were many different contingents focusing not only on their, their issues, like there was a women's contingent, there was a people of faith contingent, um, there was a uh, Burmese contingent, there was uh, the bailout the people contingent, but there was also um, a climate contingent, contingent and feeder marches, I should add. There was, I want to remind listeners that are in tune to KUCI and Irvine, this is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with David Myron, longtime uh, Pittsburgh activist, resident, and uh, organizer. Uh, we're talking about the G20 and the, uh, the organizing. I think that's probably a better word to use rather than the protest, because as you point out, the organizing uh, didn't just take place in the streets. You know, when I hear of a G8 or a G20, I'm just reminded of... Uh, uh, a clip from The Simpsons where uh, Montgomery Burns, you know, the 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 billionaire is um, he, he's a member of the Billionaires Club. And uh, before you could get into the Billionaires Club, there's a sign at the entrance that says you must earn this much in order to enter. And uh, it kind of seems like the G20 or the G8 is just, you know, uh, the same way you've got a small group of individuals who control the bulk of the wealth of, and, and resources of the world, that that's really what what uh, what the G20 is about. I don't know if oh, any, a, any of that made sense. A, oh, yeah, that's a very, very eloquent characterization. I mean, not only those, I, I guess there's like two conditions that, that need to be met. One, you know, you make a certain amount of uh, money, and the other is that you're responsible for a certain amount of CO2 emissions. Um, not coincidentally, uh, the same countries that, share the bulk of the wealth are also responsible for 85% of the world's uh, CO2 emissions. So these are the people who've been essentially controlling the world, seizing the world's resources, and destroying the planet in the process. And these are the people who are making decisions to further affect the direction that the world goes in terms of everybody's access to water, to food, to shelter, and um, to say nothing of beyond, going beyond people, the millions of species that are in peril and that have already gone extinct. Well, let's take a look at the uh, police uh, crackdown or the police response uh, to the protests. I'm looking at the uh, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette today. There's an interesting uh, opinion piece from uh, a columnist, Brian O'Neill, who uh, I don't know what his political leanings are, but he took a look at uh, his own newspaper, the, uh, the, I guess the, the Pittsburgh Press, it was called, uh, from November 22nd, 1933, taking a look at strikes. And uh, he mentions that there were, I think, 4,000 people out on the streets. Uh, maybe it was more than that, only 13 arrests. And his point 
uh, is that oh, there were 4,000 people and only 125 police officers. And he juxtaposes those uh, numbers, number of cops per protester, to what uh, was witnessed in Pittsburgh. Talk a bit, and of course his conclusion is that the police response was completely uh, hyperbolic, out of line, and, and unwarranted. Uh, you have been to a number of uh, protests and uh, organizing and so forth uh, that ga- that garner international attention. How did uh, Pittsburgh differ from maybe some of the other events you've attended? In some respects, Pittsburgh mirrored other mobilizations against, uh, uh, in terms of um, international financial institution summits like the World Economic Forum. Uh, Forum to the IMF World Bank meetings, to the G8 summit in Georgia a couple years ago, to the Miami Free Trade Area of the Americas, as well as the RNC and DNC conventions. What most of these events had in common was that they were national special security events. And with that came the recognition uh, that not only would these mobilizations be the um, target for a lot of protesters, but also the occupation of a huge amount of federal resources in order to secure these proceedings, because ever since Seattle, the United States government did not want to be put in a position uh, where um, they would be hosting these meetings with international leaders and that they could be that they would be disrupted. It was an embarrassment to Clinton, and that was something that no U.S. president ever wanted to see again. So, in order to ensure that um, the heavy hand of repression has has evolved uh, since Seattle, and um, some of us like to call the evolution of that model reaching its fruition in the Miami 2003 Free Trade Area of the Americas, where there was a concentrated a concentrated set of plans put into motion, security plans, that involved not only heavy militarization and um, coordination with dozens of law enforcement agencies, federal, state, and local and county, but also, and the, excuse me, not only involved the coordination across these different agencies and the central command, but also it included the influx of a lot of money to buy less lethal weapons to carry out information warfare and uh, to um, subvert the legal system and so on. So when we talk about what happened in Pittsburgh, in many respects, we have what's called the Miami Model Checklist posted on g20media.org, where we were just checking off items in the list that we'd seen in other mobilizations. And just for the record, the the Miami Model comes from the FTAA protests in Miami. Was that in 2002? 2003, November 2003. Yeah, and it's called the Miami model because at the conclusion of the protest, which resulted in mass arrests and numerous injuries and more, there was uh, the mayor stood up with um, other public officials and congratulated their police for uh, for their fine work and said this should be a model of homeland security in the future. And so in the aftermath, a number of groups and activists, including myself, worked together to reverse engineer what that model was and understand how that gets played out. And so we tracked the Miami model as it followed these summits and and conventions. And at each convention, there were variations on the theme and sometimes new 
uh, tactics were introduced. This In Pittsburgh, there were some new tactics introduced as well, new strategies. Um, again, we saw the familiar demonization of protests, particularly trying to focus on anarchists. Um, we, we, we've witnessed huge amounts of money being spent on propaganda campaigns that the media bought into hook, line, and sinker, and to, for the large extent, the public early on. Uh, then... Um, we also saw the uh, introduction of uh, special protest ordinances. Um, originally, there was uh, a proposed a mask law to city council, which would criminalize people the intent and give police ju- the um, decision to arrest people if they thought if they were concealing identity, they were about to commit a crime. Very minority report, like um, so, that one. So pre- thankfully- preemptive arresting. Arresting oh, yes, on yes, the on the idea that maybe someone would do something. Exactly, exactly. Thankfully, that one was defeated, but uh, a couple of other ordinances did pass. Uh, one of which did criminalize intent for carrying certain types of um, objects, you know, like PVC pipes and whatnot. In any case, so that was a subversion of the legal system. And then, in the weeks leading up to it, there was an, another familiar tactic that was seen, but again, with a even more, I think, extensive and egregious nature in Pittsburgh, and that was the delay of denial of permits. So on the one hand, we had this message that only uh, protests that got a permits were authorized and legal and appropriate. Everyone else was a bad poster, bad, bad protester, but then the there was a complete outright denial and prevarication and eventually perjury on the part of the city in terms of issuing those permits. And so I was part of two suits, um, the first involving six plaintiffs, which sued the city because our permits were not getting, uh, the city was not meeting its legal obligation to deliver permits in a timely way. Uh, And then second, a second suit happened when the, um, another wave of pre pre-event repression took place, and that was in the form of harassing activists in raiding spaces. And so I was part of another suit that was um, jointly filed by uh, the Three Rivers Climate Convergence and the Seeds of Peace, with whom we were working uh, in trying to build mobilization infrastructure in a climate camp. And Seeds of Peace was providing meals for people. So their vehicles were constantly raided and harassed by uh, the police, so much so that the consequence was they were unable to leave and feed, uh, to deliver meals to people. Uh, The judge, however, ruled against us and said that um, cooking meals was not protected by freedom of speech and that he deferred to the public safety uh, officers, uh, public safety director's claims that you know, the police had good reason to believe that these vehicles were a threat to the public. Right. Um, but all that in the, you know, in the days pre- preceding, all that was in the days preceding the summit. Well, we're and then run- there were... We're running a little short on time, and so I just want to make sure, um, I mean, we, we've heard those arguments used against food not bombs in cities across the country. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, but um, what was the bottom line? How many people were arrested, and what is the fallout now? Because we're beginning to hear reports of uh, DAs dropping charges, and now the city calling for investigations. What has been the fallout? There were 190 people arrested in total, or so that's the best figure that the legal team is able to assess. There's still three or four people being held, some of whom have huge 
uh, bail set that bondsmen won't meet here in Pittsburgh. The quest for accountability has begun, and um, there are some online petitions that people can fill out to demand the release of the prisoners and to hold the city accountable. There also was, on Friday night, a specially egregious manifestation of police violence. Friday night, after the G Summit was gone, when thousands of police, you know, that's the other point I forgot to mention, the police, the Pittsburgh was shut down. It was occupied by police forces from, including, ironically, Dade County in Miami, Florida, from the, the people who were experiencing the FTAA repression. They were on the streets in Pittsburgh to now something like 2,000 National Guard. Uh, and you can see video of National Guard snatching up protesters as well, which seems to violate some rules um, of law that I'm not quite sure what yet. But in any case... Uh, G20media.org, you can find, see more video and find, uh, identify and track some of the types of repression that took place during that. But on Friday night, again, the police literally took over Pitt campus. And, uh, you know, they were met with a little bit of resistance by the Pitt police when they did so as they tried to raid dorms looking for what they believed to be, uh, were potential, uh, threats. Uh, in the end, a large number of people were swept up, including several journalists, including a journalist from the Post-Gazette and including journalists from Pitt News and photographers and so on. Innocent, uh, quote-unquote, innocent bystanders were stepped up. Actually, everyone was innocent in this, but people who just stepped out of their house for a second to see what the hell was going on, they were swept up in the violence. So um, there's a, a huge quest for accountability. Tonight there's going to be a major rally and speak-out on the University of Pittsburgh campus. Um, there have been several press conferences. Uh, there have been, as you read, a number of op-eds and editorials coming out in, that condemn, like, one of the strongest writers in the city, Tony Norman from the Post-Gazette, a columnist, said that authoritarianism blew into town and used the kind of language, that strident language, that people often accuse us of using uh, in the movement, saying police, Pittsburgh was a police state. Hmm. And so there's... You know, I went on. I went on and said that the mayor, you know, the city council should impeach the mayor. That uh, you know, he's the one that made the decision to bring the G20. He and the county executive, without consulting with city council, without consulting with the people of the city, and with that came, you know, the the millions of dollars of money to essentially shut down the city. And people went, uh, you know, by, by paying the police, by buying the new equipment, by hiring private contractors, all to secure property uh, that, in the end, there was maybe $40,000 of glasses windowed. And on the other side of the equation, $20 million of expenses and security, and to say nothing of how much the city is going to end up having to pay through the nose because of wrongful arrests, violations of first, 14th, Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment, and the overall attack on civil liberties and human rights that was Pittsburgh during the last week of September and, 2009. And, and one wonders what, uh, what the comparison is to, uh, you know, post-Super Bowl parties in cities like Pittsburgh and everywhere else, but that's uh, a topic for another day. Uh, David Myron, please give out uh, websites where people can reach you. Sure. So a clearinghouse for information is g20media.org. That's serving both now as a back end, as well as Pittsburgh Indie Media. That's pittsburgh.indymedia.org. And um, other websites to look at are whathappenedatpitt.org 
org that just was created. It might be what happened at pit.com, as well as resistg20.org, which was a main mobilizing site for the anti-authoritarian sector. And we will have those websites on KUCITalk.org. David Myron, I want to thank you so much for joining us this morning, and it's good to talk to you. Thank you, Jared. Take care. Take care.